Coming up on Stew Does America, the media finally had their gotcha moment from a Trump coronavirus task force member, or, or do they? About two years ago, we had Reed Wilson, author of Epidemic, on the radio show. Listening back to his words now is downright creepy. They were so on the money. We'll ask him where he sees this thing going next. And Jason Buttrell from the Glenn Beck program busts out of his quarantine to spend some quality time with me, six feet apart, of course. Peace. Are you conservative? Do you like thinking and laughing? Are you into free stuff? Well, if so, then make sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube, Facebook, you can watch it on Pluto TV, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're happy with your decision, which costs you precisely zero dollars and zero cents with zero tax, consider leaving us a rating and a review. Five stars. It's great. Whatever. And if you really want to help me continue to do this show, even in the midst of a freaking global pandemic, then head to blazetv.com slash stew and get a subscription. If you use my name, Stu, as the code, we'll take $30 off, and it lets the bigwigs know that you like this stupid show. Bernie Sanders may be out of the race, but his road to Stalingrad stretches as far as the eye can see. Let's keep taking a jackhammer to it. Stu does America. Ooh, yeah. Yesterday, the Trump administration was finally caught. Well, it's about time. Listen to Dr. Burks admit to the crime in plain view. And let's say the virus called you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem. Some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Ooh, wow. She also said it was a liberal way of interpreting those results. Now, a lot of people uh, think they heard some grand admission here. And, you know, a lot of smart people think that. Uh, President Trump's pick to coordinate the coronavirus task force. Did she just mistakenly admit they were vastly overcounting deaths due to coronavirus? Like uh, there are tons of people coming into the ER with a knife sticking out of their heads and they're testing for coronavirus. And that's counting as a COVID-19 death. I don't, no, that's that's not what ha- I swear. It's not what's happening. The first and probably most important thing you need to know is this isn't some crazy exception to the way these things work. It's normal. This is how the statistic is calculated. She didn't admit some big scam she was hiding. She's explaining the basic way mortality is recorded in this country. Before we get into all of that, let's note what else she said. She said in January and February, they probably missed deaths that were coronavirus related because they didn't have testing. Other countries are undercounting their coronavirus victims. And listen what she is saying as as, as her specific example here. If a person comes into the clinic because of coronavirus and then the virus causes underlying heart conditions to result in their death, countries aren't calling that a COVID related death. I mean, I think that's quite obviously insane. What Trump's COVID-19 coordinator is getting at here is probably the first piece of information that we had about the disease, that the vast majority of people who die from it have other pre-existing conditions. We know that. In fact, one of the most commonly used arguments that we should open up the economy against Trump's recommendations is to say that it's only the elderly and the pre-existing conditions that are actually seriously affected. 
Well, you can't hold that viewpoint and be surprised by what Dr. Burke said. Yeah, most people that die of coronavirus die because they are already weakened by other things. That's just how this works. As Trump's coordinator for the virus effort, she's just trying to explain the basic process of how they determine cause of death. Think of it this way. If you're in a wheelchair and someone wheels you up to the edge of a cliff and then walks away, and then a huge gust of wind blows you off to your painful demise below, what is your cause of death? Hmm. Well, if the guy didn't push you to the edge, the wind wouldn't have killed you, right? It wouldn't have blown you off. And if the guy hadn't pushed you to the edge and the wind never blew, you'd be alive too, right? The bottom line is, this is complicated and sometimes a little bit messy, but the overwhelming majority of deaths in the United States have multiple causes. To show you that this isn't some new crazy idea, this study from Minnesota showed overall from 68.9% of the 326,332 deaths from 1990 to 1998 had at least one non-underlying cause of death in addition to the underlying cause, i.e. had multiple causes. This study from Montana showed basically the same thing. 67.4% of deaths had two or more causes. And I have to say, man, life must have sucked for the 1.6% of people who had eight or more causes of death. Wow, that's a hell of a wily coyote way to go. You don't want that. So what is Dr. Burks saying? Saying that something that's not only totally normal, but something that we already know. For example, we all keep using this number of roughly 50,000 flu deaths per year. That does not mean that 50,000 perfectly healthy people get the flu and die. Almost every flu death is a multiple cause fatality. If you have a problem with your immune system and you're living a normal life, but then run into COVID-19 and die because you can't fight the illness off, is it a COVID death? Well, you probably wouldn't have died without the immune deficiency. And you probably wouldn't have died without the COVID. They work together. This is not a conspiracy. The Trump administration is covering up through Dr. Burks. It's just the way these things work. Since we don't get paid like doctors, we shouldn't have to know all this crap. But we shouldn't let the media walk us down the wrong road either. Some argue that regardless of how these deaths are calculated, this idea that a cancer patient who might even have only a month to live is being counted as a COVID death because of a test is misleading, which I can understand. But first, we have to realize that they're basically asking for a complete rethinking of how we record deaths in this country. It's like saying that you don't think walks should be used when calculating on base percentage. I mean, okay, I mean, it's an interesting point, but that's how they calculate it. I don't know what to tell you. And all these scary models are based on that calculation. And we have to be a little careful not to walk down the quality of life road here. We're all going to die someday of something. This idea of dismissing the last month of somebody's life because it's not that big a deal is a step down a kind of a problematic road that we usually hear the left wanting to travel on. It's like if you have cancer and an hour before you're going to die, you get T-boned by a drunk driver. Is that a drunk driving death or is it a cancer death? It's a drunk driving death. Now, is there a chance that some COVID positive patients may have just died separately with no effect from COVID? I mean, there probably are some that fit that description, but when we're talking about miscalculations, the overwhelming evidence seems to rest on the other side of the equation, that they are undercounting deaths. Most clearly, almost all of the COVID deaths that are being reported are people who are dying in the hospital. Those people are largely now being tested, at least in the large outbreak areas. However, if you die at home, it's a totally different story. 
Most people uh, that are there are not being tested for COVID, according to officials around the country, uh, and they are not included in the death counts. Officials say, for example, about 20 people per day usually die in their homes in New York. That number is more like 200 per day right now. At least that's what they're telling us. That doesn't mean that all of them have COVID-19, but it's likely that many do. It's also probable that some people died of other things because they couldn't get into the local hospital. Another awful, awful side of this. In Italy, the numbers are even more clear. The Wall Street Journal did an extended report helpfully titled, Italy's coronavirus death toll is far higher than reported. Huh, okay. They found 62 people who died in just two nursing homes but were never tested. Could they all be shuffleboard accidents? I mean, sure. It's possible. But when you look at the bigger picture, it's even uglier. In Bergamo province, about 1,000 people usually die in March every year. This year, it was like 5,500. About 2,000 of those extra deaths we know are coronavirus-related. But how many of the remaining 3,500 are, too? We don't know yet. It's possible that a lot of people started falling down on knives sticking out of their dishwasher all at the same time. But COVID-19 is probably a little more likely. So I guess my attempt here to defend the Trump, this is a little depressing. Uh, look, I'm trying to defend the President Trump's pick here of Dr. Burks. Um, it's starting to depress even me. But I think it's important that you at least know the background of the statistic so that, you know, you're not getting called out by all your left wing friends. I really super duper 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 want to believe that COVID-19 is a big nothing burger. Unfortunately, it's not. There's no sinister trick that Donald Trump is playing on us because he just really, really, really wants to turn the economy off for six weeks in the middle of an election year. Does that make any sense? There are impossible decisions to be made about how long we can go on like this without destroying the way of life that we have here. Asking questions about that does not mean you hate old people and want them to die. It makes you patriotic, honestly. These are difficult decisions. The economy is not a bunch of Wall Street billionaires. It's, uh, it's shorthand for our entire civilization. And we can't stay home forever. But we have to make the best decisions based on the best data we have, acknowledging there are still tons of holes in it. The media has been saying Trump has been doing a terrible job from the start. And that's increasingly the opinion of a, a part of the right as well, who argue that he's being duped by his advisors. I continue to think that while things have not been perfect, he's walked an impossible tightrope pretty well so far. And let's hope it continues, because honestly, like him or not, uh, he's the one guiding the country through this crisis. And we all need him to succeed. So Glenn and I had Reed Wilson, a national correspondent at The Hill, on radio in 2018 to di discuss his book, Epidemic. Let me give you a quick clip from that interview with a little added context of what's going on now. So e Ebola, you know, I think we're we're sitting here and there's really kind of two schools or two camps one that roll their eyes and like okay well it, it everybody always panics and it, it's always fine and the other side that is like we're right for a pandemic we're all gonna die where where is where are we which side is is more accurate 
Well, I think the we're ripe for a pandemic is probably correct. Although I don't, I don't think we're all going to die um, there. But there are definitely reasons to be concerned about the state of the global public health system. It is not adequately uh, prepared to deal with a pandemic, whether it's something that comes out of you know the Congo River Basin like Ebola, or whether it comes out of a you know a bird market in China like a, like a, a new flu or something like that. Uh. I mean, geez, Reed Wilson uh, joins us now two years later. Uh, you know, you, I don't know that you could have outlined the situation any better in advance, Reed. This is amazing. Well, uh, thank you for finding that clip. I really appreciate it. I'm now going to add that to my uh, to my my clip sheet, I think. Um, but yeah, it, look, we have seen, we, we've expected something to come out of China for a very long time, uh, especially these live animal markets. They are areas that are just ripe for what's called zoonosis, which is the process of a virus jumping from an animal uh, to a human. And, you know, I'm not terribly surprised. Even the U.S. government, the last time they ran a big uh, effort, to, sort of a, a war game on contagions, uh, they called it Crimson Contagion. They planned for a coronavirus that would come out of uh, China uh, and inf- and become a global pandemic, infect thousands or millions around the world. The only thing they got wrong was they assumed that the first case would land in Chicago and instead it landed in Seattle. I mean, it really is incredible. I mean, and, you know, as much as like you really sound prescient in that clip and, and you are, as you point out, like we did know, we had an idea that something like this was very possible. And one of the big themes of your book is we are not prepared for it. Alert, alert, alert. This could go really badly if this yeah. happens. I mean, as you're watching this develop now in real time after putting all the research into this book, it's, it's got to be it's got to be really intense to watch it happen. It is. The last month has been one of the least favorite months of my life. Uh, as we take, I mean, there are going to be so many people across the country who are infected with this and who are going to ultimately die because the United States didn't do the necessary planning work and in some cases undid some of the work that happened uh, after the Obama administration's uh, Ebola attempt. And I'm not saying this in, in a partisan way, but the fact is we live in this globalized society, right, where uh, a virus gets on an airplane from China and comes to the United States and goes to Italy and Spain and everywhere else around the world. And we have to act like we're in this global environment. uh, And therefore, we have to be watching around the world. We have to be creating sort of the surveillance programs uh, that that can keep an eye out for a virus that starts small in a city like Wuhan, China, and suddenly breaks into a pandemic. We're not very good at as a species at planning for the future, but we need to be doing this kind of planning now. And by the way, this isn't going to be the last one. You and I are going to be talking about, I, I don't want to guess as to where the next uh, pandemic is going to come from. I'm, I'm one for one. I'm going to stick with that average. Uh, but look, pandemics happen, right? H1N1 happened, SARS, MERS, all of these happened since the turn of the, of the century just 20 years ago. Well, what's next? The next one's coming soon. Mm. Well, um, one of the, uh, let me give you another uh, clip here from the 2018 interview, because I, I found it to be fascinating listening back to it. We are talking about Ebola and how it popped up in Liberia. And you're talking about the dynamics of why that wound up being a really good place for something like this to start uh, and a warning for what could happen next time. Listen. The United States effectively created Liberia back in the 1800s as a, a refuge for slaves, former slaves who were returned uh, back to Africa. And the, the, the big 
the big moment when 3,000 American troops arrived, you know, the U.S. favorability rating in Liberia is like 99%. It was seen as this blessed moment when uh, the, the great savior had come and, and really was going to help turn the tide on this virus. Imagine what happens if this virus pops up in Pakistan or Indonesia or, or China even, a place, you know, no, a place where the 101st Airborne would have to fight its way in before it got to fight the virus. I really think that that's an important part of the story, Reed, in that, you know, because it was China, we didn't get the right information early on. That's pretty widely known now. I don't think we're still getting it at this point. Um, and because of that, I mean, even, you know, some of our experts here have said, well, we were sort of misled into believing it wasn't going to be as serious as it wound up being. The fact, talk a little bit about how that relationship was different between into, uh, the Ebola breakout and, and what we're facing today. Right. Uh, China is clearly not as forthcoming uh, with information about uh, their viruses. They were more forthcoming with this virus than they were about SARS. Uh, a decade ago, they basically pretended that SARS didn't exist until it had killed uh, a couple of thousands of their of their, their residents, and they decided they needed help. This time around, we're not entirely clear on the timeline. We need to go back and do some real investigating on that and figure out what, went, what happened within China. They're obviously not going to be uh, sort of opening the books to us, but uh, there, are, there are sort of ways to investigate that, and I'm sure those investigations are coming. The important thing that China did do, and this I hope is going to be a precedent for every future outbreak, is they sequenced the RNA of this virus. They, they, you know, they, they figured out what the virus was actually made of, and they posted it online. And that allowed groups like the CDC, the WHO, private labs around the world uh, to develop some diagnostic tests really early, and even to get started on vaccines. I mean, there were vaccines that were in preparation even before the first case hit the United States. So, yeah, China is not a good actor in all of this. There are some very complicated politics at the World Health Organization uh, because of their uh, their sort of status as a, a U.N. body that has to play to all of their member states. Uh, but the good news is we got started on this early. We got started on building the tests even before uh, the disease got to American shores. I hope that that becomes a standard that sharing of information. There is nothing about a uh, big uh, global pandemic that is that is uh, that validates hiding information or keeping it secret. Uh, the, the openness about information and transparency, not only does it help governments prepare, it helps laboratories create tests, and it helps you and I, you know, the average citizen, figure out what we really need to do to protect ourselves. One of the great things that has come out of this, I think, is the fact that so many Americans are practicing these social distancing techniques uh, that uh, the government has talked about as necessary to bending down the curve. Americans are smart. And if, if they are given expert advice and expert guidance about how to uh, protect themselves and their families and their communities, they'll do it. And we're seeing that right now. And that, I think, is why we're seeing, and this is the first time I've said this publicly, so uh, I'm, I'm a little cautious about this, but today is the first day in about a month where I feel like there's some reason for optimism optimism, that the worst case scenarios are not going to be realized. The curves are starting to bend down in some key early states. And that tells me that Americans are, took this seriously, took their responsibility seriously, and they're doing their job because in the end, we're a smart people. Yeah, you know, I honestly wouldn't have thought that, I, I, you know, I love the American people. We, I agree with you. We're smart people. Uh, but we're also a, a, a a group of people who are really prized their freedom and their individual liberty. And I would have honestly thought there would have been more pushback. I think people actually 
saw how serious this was. It hit him hard and fast. Um, and that, I think, took people's sort of breath away. And we're like, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll go along with this here for a while. Um, and, and I think that's been really uh, important to, to kind of to, to turn these things around. Let me try to pull you out of your optimism for just a quick second, because um, uh, this is what I do here. Um, because we are all kind of obsessed, and I know I am. When you go on, you're going online, you're checking the curves, you're looking at the new numbers. I mean, like we, I think everybody is doing this at this point. One thing I think has been un, uh, covered a little bit um, uh, less and too, too little, honestly, has been the idea of developing countries that aren't testing, that are basically living their normal lives um, and have no ability to s- social distance because they, you know, they don't have the, the wealth of, of the United States of America or Europe. These countries, we have not seen anything really uh, as to what the effects are going to be in some of these nations. Do you have any concept of how this is going to play out? Yeah, I, I wrote about this last week. I, I called a bunch of my old friends from the uh, the Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa, and I said, what's going to happen in Africa? And then I went and I tallied up the actual number of confirmed cases that are in Africa. And the, the total number today passed 10,000. There are not 10,000 cases of the coronavirus in Africa. There might be there might be a million. I mean, they're, they're, we're talking multiples of whatever has been confirmed because for all the problems that we had testing here in the United States, Africa's got those those problems in spades. Uh, just to put that in context, as Africa passed 10,000 today, that's about the same number of cases as Portugal. Portugal has, what, 20 million residents? Africa has a, a billion plus. Mm. Um, the good news is Africa is the youngest continent in the world which means that uh, the young people there might not be as susceptible to a virus like this as a much older population in a place like Spain or Italy. Uh, The bad news is a lot of those young people are walking around malnourished and undernourished, and they've got these underlying conditions that uh, we know contribute to worse outcomes of the disease. So I'm really worried about what's going to happen in Africa uh, especially, and we haven't even started talking about the subcontinent or or places like that. Um, One happy note that I will say is as a legacy of the Ebola outbreak, a lot of these countries in Africa are really good at the kinds of stuff uh, that you have to do to keep a small outbreak from becoming a big outbreak. And that's things like contact tracing, making sure you know uh, every person that a that a confirmed case has come into contact with so that you can get that person into treatment really early if they start to, start to show symptoms rather than allowing them to spread the virus even further. So uh, you know, developing countries are better than that even better than than we are at at uh, in, in some cases we're much better at uh, you know medicine and, and hospitals and the sort of fancy stuff of medical technology they're good at the basics those basics can still save lives and I hope that's the case but you're right I'm I'm not optimistic about what we're about to see out of Africa um, uh, let me give about one more minute here let me uh, give you this and I hate to only give you a minute for this because it's kind of a big question but I look at this and I say, okay, let's just say, you know, this is working really well. It seems to be effective so far in the early returns, this social distancing and all this shutdown. But it's not sustainable forever. We can't just shut down our country for multiple years. Um, So at some point, we're going to have to come up with some plan to get out of this. Uh, On the other side, you know, I haven't seen a plan that that looks all that optimistic unless we come up with some real serious uh, therapy or treatment that's going to, you know, make this and we have a while before the vaccine comes. So it, what it, how do we how do we balance this? Have you seen anything in history that that offers a good vision of how to balance economy versus, uh, you know, the virus? 
That's a really good question, and it's not something that I'm terribly optimistic about either. I mean, it, I, I was talking to my you – know, I'm, I'm from Seattle, and that's where the big outbreak started. And one of the things that officials were telling me about the early days of the outbreak is they were really uh, nervous because the weather was good. And if you're from Seattle, you know how rarely the weather is good out there. Yeah. So if the weather's good, people are going to go outside and sort of break that kind of curfew uh, that the governments are, are trying to impose. Um, you know, can we sustain this for months? Uh, I'm not sure. I think people are going to want to get out, are going to want to go back to work. I mean, I want to go back to work uh, as as we speak. But um, at, at the end of the day, we, we need – let's put it this way. The social distancing that we're doing now and bending the curve down is giving us an opportunity to do the sort of contact tracing and robust testing that, that China and South Korea and the countries that have really gotten this under control – take China out of the equation. South Korea, Taiwan, places like that have done to get this under control. Control. The social distancing has opened the window. Let's walk through it and make sure that we're doing that kind of testing and that kind of tracking, because that's what's going to get at, get us out of this before there's a vaccine. All right. Reed Wilson, the book is called Epidemic. You should go back and read it. And it's a, it's a great outline and it gives you so much, so much information on what we're actually facing now. I appreciate you coming on the program, Reed. Hey, thanks a ton, Stu. All right. Back in a second. Against my better judgment, I've allowed another human being within 10 feet of myself. Jason Buttrell is the head writer and researcher of the Glenn Beck program here on Blaze TV. Jason, how are you weathering the pandemic? This is the first time I've put on pants with a belt. This is awesome. <laughs> I didn't want to know about your pants situation, to be honest with you. Um, if you happen to be watching this particular show uh, in, as part of the linear lineup we have here uh, at Blaze TV, maybe you're on Pluto TV watching or you're on the Blaze TV app, um, the thing that you're going to see after this is a special um, from Glenn that is airing um, Arguing with Chinese Socialists. Uh, Glenn's book, of course, came out, Arguing with Socialists, this week. Um, Arguing with Chinese Socialists, it goes into a theory, and we kind of covered it a little bit this week on the show as well, that I'm surprised I'm being won over by, uh, frankly. Uh, the idea that maybe uh, the coronavirus started in a lab in China. So we, we pointed this out a while ago. I think this was back, like, Glenn was one of the first ones to talk about this. I think it was back in mid-January-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were pointing out the fact that, you know, this virus was being studied in, in, a, in a bio lab in Wuhan. Um, there was a medical journal, The Lancet at the time, who was very respected. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also Chinese, I believe. That They were saying, look, uh, patient zero didn't come from the animal market. In fact, we don't know where patient zero came from. And in fact, the people that were infected in the, in the market definitely weren't, it, it wasn't like the same exact strain from the people of some of the other cases that we found elsewhere outside the market. So they were like, bottom line is this did not come from the market. We don't know where it did. Now, instantly you were branded a conspiracy theorist if you even talked about it. Yeah. I think it's important to figure out or to kind of analyze how you're being attacked first off before we go into this further on if this is a conspiracy theory. So instantly they'll have scientists come out and say, look, this is too messy of a design. As far, if you were gonna design a virus and you're a scientist, this is not how you would do it. This is typically mother nature made. Mm-hmm. Now we're not arguing that at all. Right, right. Like we're, yes. It's not a bioweapon. It's, it's not, not a, a man-made virus. Right. But it does appear that there's a chance it came from research ongoing at this lab that may have leaked out that contaminated a worker there something like that um it, i mean and the evidence is is pretty pretty significant so 
that is one group of scientists that said that, all right? Instantly started getting shut down, mostly by the Communist Party in China, mm -hmm. but also with their leverage, I believe, over here in the United States with our media. Now, a few other researchers, two researchers specifically, and if you look at their uh, resume, it's pretty dang impressive. Mm -hmm. It'd be the, it would be the equivalent of if you and I were actually smart mm -hmm. and our resume, yeah, ex not, mm -hmm. but <laughs> our resume said MIT, yeah. you know, all these other prestigious universities, Harvard, that's what there's shows. Not only that, but they were also peer-reviewed and had the backing of a national, I was, I can't remember, it was in a Politburo in China, who, I can't remember the acronym, but it was like the National Academy of Sciences or whatever sure. for the entire country. Mm -hmm. Now, what they said was, look, we did our own research. We screened every uh, victim that was known at the time. And we also talked to witnesses inside the animal market. They said the horseshoe bat was not even being sold in that market. We also look, they also looked into it and traced the actual bat, the carrier of the disease, is over 500 miles away. So they were like, and not only, <laughs> this gets it more and more insane, yeah. but not only that, but they said, we looked to see where this possibly could have started from. And they said, well, are there any other, you know, um, labs that were studying this virus close by? Because they know that it eventually got to the animal market. Mm -hmm. It just didn't originate there. Yep. 300 yards away, three football fields, 300 yards away, is, I can't remember, it was the, it was the Wuhan uh, Center for Disease Prevention and Control or something like that. They said that is only 300 yards away. Well, lo and behold, we found a video that was released December, I think around December, it was the first week in December, where there was this researcher, and it was very slickly produced. Mm. And he's crawling, you know, he's a hero, you know, he's the, he's the white knight against, you know, uh, viruses or whatever. And he's going into this cave and he's saying, yeah, there's a lot of coronaviruses within these bats and I'm going to take a few samples. And, you know, the horseshoe bat specifically. Where does that guy work? The Wuhan Center for Pre Prevention of Disease and Control. Mm. The same exact place. Their final conclusion to tie a bow on it was, we know that people were messing around with this virus. Our conclusions are it came from one of these labs. It's just <laughs> wild. And it does, like, you know, we know the Chinese government lies uh, all the time, right? We know that. And we know that they, w during the SARS uh, epidemic, they hid a lot of that stuff early on because they were embarrassed by it and blah, blah, blah. And it, it broke out, but not nearly like this one has. Um, in between those two times, they built a pretty robust system to report on these diseases so that they didn't have another SARS incident. In fact, just a few months ago, one of their big like, uh, you know, uh, like their CDC guys was out there saying we will never have another SARS like incident. They were so confident in the way they had built that up. You got to wonder, though, yeah. what were they confident of? Mm. That the virus wouldn't spread all over the world or that the information wouldn't get out. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what they were confident about. Well, it's possible. But I mean, I think in a way this almost points more towards the lab. And the reason why I think that is because they did make a big show about being able to get these reports quickly from the from where these things developed to the central government to get that to get it posted online. They did post the, the, the gene, you know, the genetic background of the disease fairly quickly. But they kept, they, they kept everybody in the dark about the origin. And it seems like, uh, you know, a, a group of people who, who had a start like that where they're doing research and they've really screwed this up and released a virus that's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people, most likely, and will most likely be the most deadly global pandemic uh, in the last hundred years. There's a real reason for them to hide that one more than even SARS. It's not just embarrassment. I mean, this is something where they were studying these things, and this has been, you know, a complete disaster. A complete disaster. But And the worst part about all this is that, 
you know, I guess it's it's the fact that okay, so so back let's let's use SARS, two thousand three ish. We could, I think, pretty much trust our media somewhat to report on some of these things, uh, at least point the finger at China, and I think they largely did at the time. Mm-hmm. So look, they're hiding all. They're not doing that now. In fact, they're using the media as they're uh, they're using China as like a poster child, propping yeah. them up. Uh, whether it's their you know false reporting of cases, deaths, oh, um, yeah. how they handled it. It's not at all how they act, you know, acted just 17 years ago. Um, what's interesting is, speaking of SARS, since we're on that, there's already precedent for this type of thing, like the, the virus coming out from a lab. Mm-hmm. Already precedent. We found, a, uh, we found a news article, not really reported on too much at the time, but this was in 2004. So they had already gotten SARS under control. Mm-hmm. Um, but two more breakouts occurred in 2004. In fact, it was around, I can't, it was like 10 to 12 deaths um, hundreds of people had to go into isolation and were quarantined. And the reason being was two people from a lab in uh, Beijing, they got out, they, got, they were infected, and that's how this started. There's already precedent for this. So how are we, consi- why is it conspiracy theory now? Just to point out the fact that like, these are not conspiracy theories, they're facts. Mm. These are the facts that the experts are, are saying this is probably what happened. But we're being, you know, a muzzle is being put on everyone and branded a conspiracy theorist. It's insane. The, the downside of this, however, I would say, is that we lose all the bat soup jokes. Um, yeah, those I, are out the window. I really wanted them. Yep. I want them to be real. And I, I stand by, like, my reasoning for the Chinese people to stop eating bats has nothing to do with coronavirus. I just want them to stop doing it. <laughs> uh, you saw the picture of the freaking horseshoe bat. It's a terrifying creature. The last thing in the world you should want to do is eat it. Who's eating that? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I can't even understand it. Um, when, when this is all over, I, I've come, you know, I go back and forth on this because this is, I'm legitimately angry about this. You know, we are losing a year of our lives here or more. Tens of thousands of people here in the United States are going to lose their lives over this. And this is, you know, we would have been able to get this under control if China was uh, was honest about this from the start. Um, and, you know, who knows? We may still have screwed it up. I don't know. But we at least had a chance to do, to, to get it under control. Uh, I'm pissed about this. Yeah. I'm legitimately pissed off. And I want repercussions mm. uh, on China when this thing is over. I fear that we are so dependent on them for so many different things that that might not happen. How do you see this playing off uh, out afterwards? I would personally like to see a post-World War II style tribunal on this. I think it's that serious. Um, I I have done research for the show, for the network, uh, and for myself, really, just trying to get a handle on this. And the first reported cases were back in mid-November. Mid-November. They knew about it. Then they knew it it was an outbreak. They were fully sequenced the virus sometime by mid-December, mid to late December. And then they ordered the information suppressed in late December. Um, this is all on record. Then they were lying to our CDC on January 8th saying it doesn't travel human to human. Then they lied to the WHO. WHO just parroted that information off to, uh, on January 14th. There are some serious questions that need to be answered. Um, where exactly did this originate from? Um, what were the efforts the Chinese went to try and tell people, no, it's, it's great, keep on traveling, which the WHO obliged them and said, yeah. In fact, they tried to suppress votes you know, to, uh, within the WHO. Uh, there was a Sky News reported on this a couple days ago that there's a handful of them. The WHO is not releasing those names on who it was, but they shut down a vote to shut down travel to and from China, all on China's uh, behalf. We have to find out how deeply uh, infiltrated the WHO is. The director, forget it. I, the president said, was that today or yesterday? 
that he was considering just, you know, cutting off our aid, which were the main funders for the David show. I would cut it off right now until they fire that director. He's yeah. just a start, but I think the full audit of the WHO needs to needs to happen to find out just how deeply in bed they are. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, look, World Health Organization did good work on smallpox uh, and, and really were key in making sure that thing went away. And I do not want to get smallpox, so I'm glad they did that. Um, but here we are at a point where they seem worthless. I mean, you know, they, they they've uh, they've really just, you know, propped up the the lies of China over and over again through this. Um, they. It's an organization like I feel like it's one of those rare things that is actually useful when it comes to these big uh, intergovernmental sort of organizations. You know, pandemics like we need to have a way to respond to these things. And the fact that they're doing such a terrible job and it's become so political is, is a scary thing for the world. Yeah, they, they talked about not politicizing this event. That's that was their response to Trump and withholding aid. But I looked at the, uh, the statements from China's uh, secretary of state or whatever, their version of the State Department. And their statements almost mirrored exactly to the letter everything that WHO was uh, pushing out at the exact same time. It it was almost like the Communist Party in China was handing them Mm -hmm. what to say, and they were just doing it, regardless of the facts, regardless of the science. I mean, you look at that video of the the questioner about Taiwan that we played. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's so awkward. Oh, my gosh. It's like you can't even admit that that Taiwan exists. Yeah. Like, if you can't admit that, how can we possibly trust the information you're giving us about, you know, a complicated infectious disease spread. Yeah. I mean, it really is not even possible. Uh, Jason Buttrell, uh, head writer, researcher uh, for the Glenn Beck program. Uh, we have the big special coming up uh, tonight. Uh, it's called Arguing with Chinese Socialists. Uh, and you can check it out. Uh, make sure uh, you, uh, you do, uh, and, and look, you can always fund Jason's trips outside of this basement. And who knows to what other weird place. Next time an infectious disease breaks out, we can just send Jason. I'm there. And he can just go cure it for us. Uh, you can subscribe to Blaze TV, get his, uh, you know, all of his material and, uh, and the special from Glenn tonight. BlazeTV.com slash stew is the place to go. If you use the promo code stew, you're smart because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, they will give you 30 bucks off the price. Back in a second. All right, we're blowing up the plan here because we had something else planned. But Jason and I got into the break here and we started talking about the story with the Navy and everybody's getting fired. And I, I don't understand anything really about internal military stuff. You do. Obviously, you've been there. Uh, can you walk me through this story? Yeah, so Captain Crozier, we all know, he, so his USS Roosevelt ended up getting an outbreak of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So he wrote a letter pleading for help, which somehow got leaked to the media. Now, the implication was that Captain Crozier was the one that leaked the... Right. And that's what, so that's all a lot of people heard. And at first, I was like pissed off because I was like, oh, you never step outside of your chain of command. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the, the Secretary of the Navy, Modley, ended up giving a speech uh, to the Roosevelt, and he was, you know, he used profanity. He was saying that uh, Captain Crozier was incompetent, all these things. Totally different vibe than the press conference. Completely different. They were very complimentary to him, even when they fired him. And which is weird, because we know Captain Crozier was beloved by his crew, mm-hmm. because we saw that one video as he was relieved and left, his crew erupted in applause. Mm-hmm. Now... This is my issue with the, how the media is covering this. They're not asking questions about it. They're using it as a gotcha to Trump. I am very pissed off at multiple people within the chain of command 
Um, I'm, I'm used to say this is kind of hard to, to kind of visualize in a place like Texas because there's certain areas of the country where military is kind of seen as second class citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you get that in places in uh, Southern California where there's a lot of military bases. So just outside of military base, it's almost like war zones on Friday and Saturday night. You don't want to be anywhere near there. You don't want your kids anywhere near there. Um, so I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. But not. But I've never really seen that from our Department of Defense. And let me explain. It seems kind of like, first off, Captain Crozier, he approved, let's start at his level. He approved a port call um, in the first week of March to Vietnam. It was a huge PR stunt. Um, it was the first time since like 1975, or the second time since 1975 that an aircraft carrier had docked in uh, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We know that the commander of the entire uh, Pacific fleet was there to greet the ship. We know the ambassador of Vietnam was also there. So let's look at that right there. We know that the Secretary of Navy must have known about the port call. Sure. We know that Secretary Pompeo must have known about that port call. This is a huge PR stunt. Mm-hmm. Now my question is, why would they do this? as the coronavirus is exploding all over Southeast Asia. Now, that is the main issue right there. But Captain Crozier has, become, is, has been made the scapegoat because he's the one that pleaded for help after the fact. Now, if Captain Crozier did this unilaterally, he deserves to be fired, let go, whatever. But no, this was a giant PR stunt that went all the way to the top. So the Secretary of the Navy, he's now getting flack because, or the, the acting Secretary of the Navy, because he made this vicious you know, speech on the Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue. The issue is that he approved this from the get-go. So I want a full review of every single superior above Captain Crozier that said, yeah, let's go ahead and do this at this time. Because they are the reason why over 100 sailors on the Roosevelt are now sick. Mm. And while that is spreading out, they treated their crew, their, their, uh, crew as second-class citizens. But also, the Secretary, uh, the Secretary of State, you're involved in this as well. Now, my question now is, how far over that does that go? Yeah. Now, I don't want to say things that I don't know about, but did the president of the United States know about this? Because he's not acting like he knew about this. Mm-hmm. If he did, he is in that chain of blame. It, this yeah. goes a lot more than what, what we're being told about. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting because I think you can excuse the average person from not really understanding what's going on with a pandemic even in early March, right? Like I, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the poll that they took on March 11th, that it was uh, 87% of people, 87% believed there would be less than 10,000 deaths from the coronavirus. Like this is not something that the American people had a handle on, but the military did. Like they, you know, w- when you get to that level and you're talking about sending, you know, our military into a, a place that could, I mean, God only knows what the situation in Vietnam is with this. We, we haven't heard much about it. They haven't done much testing. Uh, you know, you're sending them into the middle of a disaster area. Think about this. By, by the first week of March, we had pretty much halted air travel from, from, that, from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It was shut down, except for the wow. 6,000 sailors on board that ship that were given port call. Why is that? Why did it, because, is it because you wanted those pictures of, the, of, of, all, of our Navy walking out and, you know, mingling with, uh, you know, Vietnam for that big PR thing? Like, if we're not letting citizens go because there's a big danger... Why did you let the military go? Mm. That makes no sense. Yeah, about 10 more seconds here. Uh, is, is this something that blows up into something bigger or because of everything else going on, does it just go away? Well, my mission is to make it go bigger. I've reached out to contacts in the DOD. They're stonewalling me at the moment. They will not answer these questions. But if, this will st- if the media will do their job, this can get bigger. And I want to find out all the names. So I want to put a name to every single person that approved this because they are directly responsible. All right, Jason Buttrell, uh, back in uh, just a second. 
Arguing with Chinese Socialists is a special from Glenbeck. You can get it on demand anytime if you go to blazetv.com slash stew and join. Become a subscriber. Uh, use the promo code stew and save 30 bucks off your subscription. Talk to you tomorrow.